Thanks for uh, joining today. For those of you that uh, have clicked on this because of the title that was offered, if you happen to have any of the issues that we are going to be covering, please make sure that you contact your primary care provider for discussions about uh, possible medical treatments that might be available to you. Please make sure that you are clicking that like and subscribe button, helping us out with the, the metrics within the algorithms. And so with all that said, let's go ahead and let's get started. There are a lot of people out there voicing opinions. The ability to voice an opinion is vital to having a conversation. But far too often, we tend to uh, go astray within the discussion, particularly with issues related to obesity. And with the discussion we're going to have here today, uh, looking at a documentary that we found on YouTube called Obesity Conspiracy, I'm left with a single question. Are you actually trying to cause an eating disorder? Far too often, the discussions and the presentations show an obvious bias, a general lack of awareness to what metabolism actually entails, and an ignorance about historical perspectives associating beauty, health, and the concept of an ideal body image. The discussion here is continuing stuff that we previously looked at with the uh, episode, What? No, a single meal or party won't ruin your diet. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and let's talk about obesity conspiracy. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. We're going to go ahead and uh, be discussing some topics that were raised in a, a video that was brought to my attention by Michaela, uh, titled Obesity Conspiracy, I believe is the, the title for YouTube that we're going to be discussing here. And it goes into, or excuse me, it's titled The Obesity Conspiracy. And it goes into a whole host of issues, I guess we can call it that, as it relates to um, causes and possible solutions for obesity. And before we get going here, just so that everybody's kind of caught up on terms, I don't like using obesity as a term because obesity is uh, an old measure that is, or it's an older term, I should say, that is based off of a relationship between height and weight. Where if you look at anybody that, or uh, ball sports, most of our professional athletes would be labeled as either severely overweight, overweight, or obese based off of the BMI metrics. And so I don't like using the term obesity. I'd rather use the term over fat because that is what is actually the root cause for a lot of the health issues that was brought up in the presentation. The other thing that uh, we'll touch a little bit on as we go through uh, the series of episodes here is there's a lack of historical understanding as it relates to body image and what we look at as being ideal, air quotes around that, um, for what ideal happens to be, because ideal is a, is a sociological measure of beauty, and that sociological measure of beauty changes based off of what we would view as societally or socially appealing. And so there's a lot of kind of 
changes of perspective in terms of what we would consider to be ideal, what we consider to be beautiful, and what we consider to be aesthetic in terms of body image. And that leads to a whole host of uh, bidysmorphic problems that come about. And uh, a couple of things that came out uh, recently in terms of, and by recent in terms of sciences within the last five years, um, has been a understanding of the impact that electronic projections of body image has had on understanding of body image. Uh, I know that Mikhail and I have talked about this previously off, off recording, the fact that uh, actors and actresses have a lot of body dysmorphic issues that come out, and that has to do with the fact that they're taking a three-dimensional object and then squeezing it into a two-dimensional, so they're flattening everything out. But then at the same time, they're trying to have a body image that meets what the producers are looking for, which is why we see a lot of actors and actresses, however you want to, to gender label that, have in terms of their, their body image and the fact that they will undergo, as we'll talk as we talk throughout this discussion here, a lot of biodysmorphic eating behaviors, anorexia, bulimia, uh, exercise bulimia issues. And so, with all of that said, let's go ahead and let's get into the the bulk of the discussion here. And so, so good. I have some timestamps for you, and okay. I have quite a few. So I kind of I excluded a couple of them because I felt they weren't very important. So I just wanted to get kind of the main ideas down okay. and basically what I think people would actually want to hear you answer. Cause I had some in here that were like, okay, this person claims most doctors do this. You're a doctor. Do you do that? And I was like, nah, we'll just skip that because it's not, it's not like the, the misinformation about the, the health stuff. It could be misinformation, but it's not what everyone wants to hear primarily. So what would, what would be an example of, of what you thought would be a misinformation? Um, well, I do have, now this actually repeatedly comes up. Okay. So I didn't like hearing this because I actually have personal experience with hearing things like this and I know how they can affect somebody. Mm -hmm. So it's when the narrator poses the question or doesn't pose the question. He says that there is something as real food. So there's this concept of real food, processed food, low-fat processed food, and high-sugar processed food. So he drops all those at once. And what he basically says is when you don't eat these real foods, right, that you're going to basically start getting things like diabetes. You're going to get obese. You're going to have uh, all these hormonal issues. So this is what the big kind of overarching theme of this whole video was. And with this real food thing, um, I don't know how much you endorse that, but I have had in the past with actually an English course I, course I took, um, they made me read all these books. And I think this was all mostly from Michael Pollan, if you're familiar with Michael Pollan. And they made me basically believe that semester that anything that I ate that was more than five ingredients was going to kill me. That that was the whole theme. And that's what I feel like with this. And I don't like it because it creates anxiety and stuff. And I just, I, I know that I don't think you would endorse this real food label. I don't think you would. Yeah. Real food. Is, it's so it's, it's oxymoronic because yes. all food is real food. Cause yes. Cause if it's in reality, it's real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and, so, and I've heard you say that before. Yeah. And, and so the, 
the pitch of real food versus not real food. So, that, so that basically, so we have to look at we have to look at in terms of, of the duality of the of the stipulation. And so, the duality of the stipulation is that if it's 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 either real food or it's not real food. And the not real food is usually labeled as the processed food. Exactly. And coming out of this conjecture is that if it's processed food, we then have to add stuff back into the food to make it healthy. And right. that ends up leading to misconceptions as to what is good and what is bad in terms of, of food. And it harps into something that I've mentioned on previous episodes, stuff that I've written about in the Substack as well as in my actual scientific journal publications is that food is food, and the body can't determine is it food that is manufactured in a lab or is it food that is manufactured in the labs that are our cells? Because our cells are nothing more than, than, than manufacturing labs. If, if you break it down, that's what the cells are doing. They're, they're taking raw material in, and they're building stuff to, to be produced. And the cells can't determine where does that chemical come from. Now, there are distinct chemicals that we do have in food that come from both quote unquote real food using the the, the stipulations and the in the narrations of the of the video we're commenting on but also in the processed food, the food that comes from manufacturers and those foods are deemed dis- disturbers disruptors and there are two distinct classes of disruptors there are metabolic disruptors and there, and there are hormonal disruptors. And so metabolic disruptors are disruptors that are going to somehow influence the biochemistry based on their presence. Most of those metabolic disruptors in terms of health issues lead to changes in metabolism that causes inflammation to occur. Endocrine disruptors are completely different. What endocrine disruptors are going to do is that they're going to either mimic how hormones function within the body. They're going to block hormones' ability to interact at cells, or they're going, or they're going to do some sort of combination between the two. Meaning they're going to do some sort of interference that's going to change what we call sensitivity to a hormone. Now, with that in mind, almost everybody on a daily basis consumes an endocrine disruptor. And no one thinks about it. caffeine. Oh. Yeah. Caffeine is an endocrine disruptor. It's going to disrupt adenosine signaling. It's going to disrupt dopamine signaling. And it's going to to disrupt our stress hormone, adrenaline, epinephrine, noradrenaline, norepinephrine. Didn't know that. And so, and it it does it by either uh, working to accentuate dopamine's effect within the, within the, the brain working to block adenosine's effect both within the brain as well as throughout the rest of the body. It's going to uh, mimic ephedrine, it's me, epinephrine or norepinephrine's effect. And so the chemical structure of caffeine is very similar to what we refer to as the monoamine neurotransmitters or monoamine or catecholamine hormones. And by doing that, it's an endocrine disruptor. But we don't think about it as an endocrine disruptor. No. I'm going to take it because I'm feeling kind of lethargic. And I need a quote-unquote pick-me-up. Well, what's yep. it doing in terms of the pick-me-up? It's, it has to do something either metabolically or endocrinely to cause that pickup. Exactly. But once again, no one thinks about 
caffeine that way. They think about caffeine being caffeine. Exactly. The the if we if we actually wanted to to think about it, the the most used drug in the world is caffeine. Yeah. Because drugs are drugs in terms of chemical function and chemical uh use within the body are there to mimic or disrupt hormone signaling. That's how that's how drugs work in terms of changing metabolism. Exactly. And, and so so if we start thinking about okay, food being real or not real, it's leading to it's I don't want to say it's coming from a biased perspective, but it's coming from a less forthcoming perspective. And a lot of times when we start seeing this food being real or not real, it's a a wanton desire to say we're going to live more quote naturally end quote yes but that's once again term. but once again that's it's well, what's that mean natural exactly if, if, if you think about it in terms of biochemistry in terms of physiology natural the opposite of natural is synthetic and, right. and, and the difference between being natural and being synthetic is basically where is it being produced it has nothing to do with what the with what the chemicals do to, it's about, it's about where within the biochemical processes are we getting those, those substances. And the misconception that's out there is that if something is made by a company, processed within a manufacturing plant, it somehow becomes lower in terms of nutrients than what I would get if I was just to go and pick a fruit or a vegetable out of the garden or go pick an egg out of the, the chicken coop. That is another thing that comes up later. And, and so it's, it, what, it's, what it's doing is it's, it's sending wrong messages about food and sending wrong messages about nutrition as relates to what nutrition does for health. Because if, once again, the only way that nutrition is going to impact health is, is to be an endocrine or be a metabolic disruptor. Mm-hmm. And just because I'm a metabolic disruptor or, or I'm an endocrine disruptor doesn't mean it's 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 a positive thing or a negative thing. It simply means that I'm having an impact on those aspects of metabolism. And so uh, I would recommend people who are listening to this to go and look at the the YouTube videos on endocrine disruptors and metabolic disruptors within within nutrition and chemistry set of of videos. And it goes into the it's it's also deals with the uh, mis nomer misconception it kind of goes into the to the poland idea if it has more than five ingredients it must be bad or if a word i cannot pronounce it automatically is something that is harmful to me exactly and once again dihydromonoxide that's water i know i was just gonna say that's just water sodium chloride it's just salt it's salt it's table salt and so when we start when we start parsing th- words out, we have to use within labeling sometimes we have to use scientific words. And just because we're using scientific words doesn't mean that it's gonna be good, bad, or indifferent. It's just that's what the word happens to be. Right. And so when we start talking about real food, not real food, five ingredients, less than five ingredients, more than five ingredients, uh, go make a cake right now and count the number of ingredients you put into the cake. Quite a bit. You're going to put in more than five ingredients. If you want it to be good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so uh, go in and uh, it's kind of hard to, to do this, but go ahead and make a steak. And so the only way to make a steak is to grow a cow. 
And there's going to be more than five ingredients in, in, in that state. Oh, yeah. And so you to say, oh, if there's one of five ingredients on a label, it must be bad is, is, is kind of leading people astray in terms of the overall kind of story as to what nutrition means for health. Have you heard of the term orthorexia ever? Mm-hmm. I've looked that up and I swear I've gotten, I've like tendencies. I got tendencies of orthorexia from that class that I took. Because I was so afraid of eating mm -hmm. anything that wasn't like just an apple. Mm -hmm. Because he made it sound like if you eat anything, anything with anything you can't pronounce, you're just going to, you're going to start killing yourself slowly. And I was, I was so freaked out for a good half a year Mm -hmm. over it. It was pretty bad. Yeah. And and so, so when you, when you talk about, when you talk about things like orthorexia, what you're, what you're basically doing is you're setting up a principled means for eating. Mm Mm-hmm. That is not based off of science, health, physiology, or any other thing that would dictate why we eat and what we need to eat. Exactly. And so, but once again, even if it's like, okay, apples, oranges. Yeah. Things that would fit within that that orthorexic eating pattern. Mm -hmm. There are things in there that if you actually list out the ingredients... You would be afraid, quotes around that, to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Because there, there's arsenic in it. <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff in it. Yeah. And, and, it's, and once again, if you think about arsenic, that's a poison. Yeah. But the amount that's there is very, very low. Isn't it on the seeds or something like that? It's around the, it's, it's around the seeds and, and within the core. But the problem is that, yes. that when you eat it, it's going to get into the flesh of what you Oh, the eating. apple. Of okay. the apple, if you cut it, it's going to be because it's because you're going to cut through the through the core. Yep, and it's going to get spread onto. But it's once again when we start talking about what's in foods, which is one of the problems with the a lot of the presentation that was there. We kind of when you asked me like, what do you think about? it? I said, well, there's some myths and some misconceptions and some stuff that's hints at being on the right track, but not quite on the right track. When we start talking about those those issues a lot of times what is up happening is, is that we want to get foods that are going to confer with what i want to eat not confer with what my body actually needs to uh, metabolize and one of the problems when we start looking at the way in which stuff gets presented in terms of how to eat when to eat how much to eat what type of foods all of that we get in this is something for for later on or even for other publication avenues we get into uh dogmatic discussions and the problem when you get into dogmatic discussions is that you're looking for tenants to hold on to and you tend to have uh fervent disagreements and those fervent disagreements become Points of contention as a point as opposed to points of intellectual growth. I see. Sounds complicated. It, it's it sounds complicated, but it's actually it's 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 one of those things that it sounds complicated, but it's actually not that complex. It's actually not that complex. I mean, yeah. you're the expert. You would definitely know more than I would. Well, it's it's it, once again, it, it's it's not about being an expert or not being an expert. It's it's about understanding the fallacies of confirmation. Right. 
and there, there's a there's in there's a lot of confirmation bias that goes into a lot of discussions as it relates to nutrition and health and exercise mm-hmm. and health and all the things that we look at in terms of lifestyle. And that's simply because within all of the cogs that fit into overall health, the societal cog, the social cog, has a lot of dogmatic inter- intertwined within it. Yes. Where the more agnostic you are in terms of applications of lifestyle, the more open you are to, to various lifestyles, the more conversations you can have between the dogmas. But you're also willing to accept the person's dogma with where they're at within their dogma. Oh, so and like so, more of a psychological. It's it's a little bit of a psychological thing, but yeah. At the same time, it's it's and this is where, like, we talk about. Oh, I appreciate you. Yeah. And I appreciate this, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that, and a lot of times it's like when people like will throw out. Oh, I appreciate. Well, what do you appreciate? And people who are um, who are agnostic in their approach mm-hmm. can appreciate more things than people who are dogmatic in their approach because you actually do appreciate it as right. opposed to just throwing out that that word. Yeah, appreciate. Word. It becomes kind of it, people who are dogmatic who say, "Oh, I appreciate." It. It's just like, well, it, please ex- please expound upon that appreciation because a lot of times they actually will say, oh, I appreciate you, or I appreciate your point of view. Oh, yeah. But then immediately counter counter that with an argument that is against, it's the same thing with, with, with accept. And so, right. like, like, I accept, when coming from an agnostic perspective as it relates to, to a lot of what's being presented within this, even though I've spent a good chunk of my adult life studying this stuff, you have to come from, and once again, it goes back to that, being able to hold two opposing viewpoints and stay sane. Right. The more agnostic you are, the more accepting you are of various perspectives, and the more appreciative you are of people who are willing to share those perspectives. Right. Because it allows you to expand your understanding of what that point of view happens to be. Right. The less agnostic you are, the more dogmatic you are, the more pigeonholed you become the more rigid you are within your, within your practices. Right. And so when we start looking at lifestyle issues, which is one of the, the, the main points of this whole obesity conspiracy thing is people choosing stuff. And there's a whole physiological aspect that they ignore within the, within the presentation. When we start looking just at the, at the lifestyle issue, what you have to understand is that that social talk is going to be influenced not by what I want to do, but how I was raised to do things. Right. And so if I was raised in a vegan household, everything that I'm going to be doing is going to be based off of vegan principles. If I was raised in a paleo household, yeah, everything I'm going to do is going to be slanted towards a paleo perspective as, as relates to nutritional aspects. If I was raised in a Central American household. Everything's going to be slanted towards that ethnocentric perspective. If I was raised in a Mediterranean household, everything's going to be ethnocentric towards that perspective. And one of the things that we don't appreciate within all of the perspectives that are out there is that we don't appreciate that that ethno part 
of oh. all of the cogs within within this. And part of that goes into the historical perspectives. Mm-hmm. And historical perspectives and sociological perspectives, go to any of the fine art museums mm-hmm. and look at the portraits that are on the walls. Those are what we would consider and deemed to be beautiful. Right. You can think about it as like the supermodels. Yes. And compare body image. Yes. All of those images we would not consider to be based off of our current, the quotes around that, ideal of beauty, to be beautiful. Right. We would consider them to be slightly fat. Yes. Leaning towards overweight, leaning towards obese in terms of the, in terms of the, the common vernacular, in terms of the common words. Right. And so there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is, is because people who had time and money had the ability to eat more food <laughs> than people who didn't have time and money. Exactly. And that became the ideal of what I wanted to be. If we look at, and this goes into particularly for the female image, mm-hmm. we become more accepting of female image across a spectrum recently. Yes. But if you look at the supermodels before we started doing the body positive yes. advertisements, and you compare it to what we refer to as an androficade body, mm-hmm. women who are on a, on the, within the, the duality of, of gender groupings. So yes. remember, gender groupings is not one big curve. It's two curves that kind of overlap. Yes. Where you have the female curve, you have the male curve, however, whichever right. side you want to put those curves on. Yes. You have females that, that trend towards male. And you have males that trend towards female, and you have males that trend towards male, and females that trend towards female in terms of in terms of body image, right. in terms of morphology, in terms of physiology. A lot of the female models that we would put on covers of magazines, independent of Photoshop and independent of any type of photo editing, are androified body image. Yes. Short torso, long limbs, broad shoulder, narrow hips. Yes. That is five uh, percent of the female population. Perfectly obtainable, you know? And so, so that's, not, that's not ideal. Uh, yeah, exactly. But what happened is, is that what got accepted within the last two decades and got pushed forward uh, within the last 10 years or so mm-hmm. is the willingness to accept female body images that did not match the supermodel body image, particularly right. amongst the advertisers. Yes. That has not happened for the men, though. For the men, it's no. actually gone backwards. Really? Even with the acceptance of the quote-unquote dad body. Really? Yeah, so the dad body is the, the male that has slightly more adipose yes. tissue. Right. Look at, the, look at the males in advertisements versus yeah. the females in advertisements. Oh, I, I didn't even consider to look at it on that level. because I, I mean, you're right with the body positive thing. I, the only time I ever hear anyone talking about it, it's usually women, whether mm-hmm. it's on social media or whatever, it's all female-centered. Yep. It's, it's, there's, it's, I've never seen a guy talk about it, I don't nope. think, to this day. And there are compilations of people who make these videos, and I've never yes. seen... And, 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 it, it, be, it becomes, and, and it becomes even worse over the last two decades with the, uh, ex- with the explosion of the superhero movies. It, yes, exactly. The, the, the marvel, marvelification of yes. male body image. Right. Where when I was growing up, it was 
G.I. Joe and He-Man and mm-hmm. the, those action figures, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Lou Ferrigno bodybuilders. Right. But now it's, it's, it's exploded beyond that, where for, for females, it's, it's become accepted to have various body images. Right. But for males, it's actually taken a swing towards where it was for females two, three, four decades ago. That's not great. And, and so there's, there's, there's a, a, a psychological toll that comes into play, particularly when we start talking about the obesity issues. Yes. And the rise of the, the body dysmorphic problems mm-hmm. and the shortcut methods. Yes. To getting to the ideal body image that's there, where we tend to shortcut the long-term effects of taking those shortcut to ideals such as the explosion in the use of pharmacological agents, Ozempic yes. to, to name brand one. I've heard about that one over quite the a last, bit. Over the last year and a half. Yes. Without understanding. So, so Ozempic is, is, a, is a GLP-1 agonist. And so it's, gonna, it's a chemical that acts like GLP, glucagon-like mm-hmm. protein, that does two things in terms of physiology. It reduces the liver's conversion of glucose metabolites to glucose. Okay. It reduces the liver's freeing of glycogen to glucose. Okay. Yeah. So it, it helps reduce glucose load, glucose in, in the bloodstream. But it also is involved with all of the feedback regulation in terms of eating. Oh. And so the way in which the Ozempic, and once again, that's the, the, the big name brand, GLP-1 medicine. The side effect of GLP-1 for the diabetic, so the type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetic would take Ozempic as part of a drug regimen. Yes. To help lower glucose. Mm-hmm. When we combine that with diet and exercise, there was there was significant weight loss. Oh wow. And because there's there was significant weight loss as a side effect to taking mm-hmm. this drug for diabetic conditions, the weight loss companies. Yeah. The uh, physicians who are trying, who are treating individuals who were once again using the common vernacular, who were obese, yes, would get prescribed this medicine, and because it changes my hunger and satiety, whether I'm feeling full or whether I'm hungry, based off of when I'm eating and, and how much I'm eating, right? Because it changes that, we change our nutrient balance, and by changing my nutrient balance, I start to lose weight. Right. But only in combination with other things. And so it goes into what's, what's happened is, is that we've seen this rise in use of that, of that medicine because of the fact that societally we have deemed fatness as being ugly, particularly mm-hmm. within subpopulations of the, the country, within subpopulations of the, of the global population. Right. But we also know physiologically and health, health-wise that the excessive fatness, not obesity, but over fatness is linked with chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation is linked with not communicable diseases. Right. By reducing fat mass, we're able to offset health issues that come about from having less than ideal diets and less than ideal physical activity patterns. And so without doing a full psychology of eating and why we eat discussion right now, that whole idea about, okay, 
the orthexic eating patterns and the fact that real food versus not real food and what that does in terms of setting up people for eating issues. What those conversations do is that it ties into the poor scientific understanding of diet and nutrition. And it ties into the fact that if I use big sounding words, it has to be correct. Yeah. Or if I can explain it in terms that a five-year-old can understand, it must be correct. Mm -hmm. If I understand it, it's got to be, it's got to be right. That's kind of the, one of the hallmarks of some of these recommendations without understanding that there is complexity there, but just because there's complexity doesn't mean that I have to be afraid of it. And just because there's complexity there doesn't mean that there's some sort of conspiracy to have it be a certain way. Right. That video would certainly have you think so. And there, and it's not just that one. There's Oh, of a, course not. There, there's a oh, number, no. there's a number of them out there. And we have this is where opinions are opinions, facts are facts. Yeah. And going to internet university does not qualify you to speak to the level of understanding someone who spends their life studying the problem or physicians who go to medical school. And the problem is that even physicians who go to medical school succumb to a lot of the myths and misconceptions out there about real food versus not real food. Right. And how to eat. And how to eat and how not to eat. Yeah. Exactly. Just out of curiosity, how do you feel about, like, when you go to Barnes & Noble and you see the whole section on diet books and there are these, you know, I've seen ones by doctors and I've seen ones by, you know, professional nutritionists and all this, but I've noticed they're all pretty much just another form of, of diet cult. I mean, that's what it appears like to me, but... Unless there's one out there that you swear by that you think is fantastic, but I don't, I, I don't think so. The, I don't want to use the word diet cult. There's a lot of diet culture. Diet culture, okay. That that's out there, and a lot of what those books are selling is diet culture, oh, as, oppo- okay. as opposed to information about diet and nutrition. Okay, okay. Well, thanks for joining part one of the conversation that we're having between myself and Michaela pertaining to the. The video, the obesity conspiracy. We'll pick up our conversation pertaining to books you might be able to find at the bookstore in the next part of the episode. Thanks again for listening. Please make sure you're giving us those uh, five star rates and reviews. Please make sure that if you haven't done so, you are subscribing and following along with all of the various uh, avenues of publication that we're putting out there here on the podcast, as well as on YouTube, on Substack as well as our short clips on Instagram and on threads. Stay tuned for part two to come up very shortly.